0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, sometimes you get an unpleasant surprise when you've had an X-ray or a scan for another reason. What to do about it is a dilemma because it could mean nothing at all. That's incidentalomas later.
1: Yeah, a new word for you. And childhood vaccination rates appear to be falling. Some of it may be due to COVID, but there is more to this story.
0: Well, speaking of COVID, Norman, it is probably beyond time for us to update the audience of where we've been this past summer. It's been a while since we've checked in on COVID rates in Australia, where we are with vaccinations and what's coming down the pike.
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately, what came down the pipe was what's happened almost every year. In fact, probably every year since COVID began, which is a Christmas spike. And over the holiday period, there's been a definite spike in COVID. There was one in November. There was a rise in November. Seemed to be going down a little bit. In fact, I made a 7.30 story on it. And then it's gone back up again over Christmas. And actually, as predicted in that 7.30 story I did, um, that GN1 uh, seems to be the variant that's dominating.
0: It's sort of counterintuitive. We usually think of respiratory things as being winter diseases, but I guess we're all really mixing a lot at Christmas time. It's probably still too early to know whether COVID is seasonal, though.
1: Um, I think we can confidently say that it's not seasonal. It seems to be happening when you've got a spike. It's happening around the world. And uh, so whether it's winter or summer, that uh, there has been a spike or surge, if you like, of COVID over Christmas, which could be partly situational where people are getting together, if you'll call that seasonal, but it's not seasonal in terms of winter or summer yet.
0: So talk to me about JN1.
1: JN1 is... um, so what, what for most of 2023 the variants or subvariants that we were looking at of omicron were all still was all still in the omicron family but the subvariants that we were talking about were mostly XBB and in fact the vaccine that came out late last year was in fact to uh, XBB1 then what emerged during last year was A variant which goes right back to BA2 and kind of avoided, you know, was a different line from XBB called BA2.86. And everybody got very concerned about this because there were lots of mutations in the virus. And they thought this was going to be a really a virus to worry about. But BA 2.86 never actually took off. Um, it was really only a minority virus, or a virus that wasn't pre- hugely prevalent, and XBB still dominated. And then came JN1. And JN1 is basically only one mutation different from BA 2.86, but it's on the spike. So that's that bit, we're going back now to ancient history (laughs) with COVID, that COVID attaches to a lock and key mechanism in the respiratory tract called the ACE2 receptor. And this one mutation makes makes JN1 incredibly infectious, much more so than what's come before. And that's why has, JN1 has taken over around the world.
0: I don't want people going out and just getting sick willy-nilly, but I, I want to also put the risk of it in context. Like what do you say it's very infectious? What does it mean in terms of severity of disease or the kind of scale of disease that we're seeing here now?
1: Well, the scale, according to New South Wales health statistics, is that it was a surge bigger than the ones they'd seen in 2023 so this this december surge was quite a big surge. so it does result in hospitalizations more residential aged care facilities um, it does result in deaths but deaths are um, a bit lower than they have been probably almost certainly due to immunization there's no evidence that jn1 is more severe causes more hospitalization than any other variant or subvariant in the past um, that doesn't mean to say it's mild but it's not more severe than what's come before.
0: So the usual COVID advice still applies. Um, What's the latest with vaccines? Do the the vaccines that are on the market now still work well against JN1?
1: Apparently they do, um, but probably a little less effectively. So in other words, they're still pretty effective or very effective against severe infection. It's likely that the vaccine itself was quite good initially for protecting against actual infection itself with xbb so it prevented infection uh, at least for a while and then um, but now with gn1 they reckon that the the protection against infection is down in other words you will still get infected with it but your chances of getting severe disease are very very much lower and indeed presumably if, if it's like the previous vaccines getting long COVID.
0: Well, we do want to talk about vaccinations. In a particular group of people today in kids, what do we know about sort of the vaccine landscape with kids with COVID?
1: Well, I mean, before we get on to that, there's an interesting context here, which is that the world is still full of vaccine-preventable infections. Mm. Um, the only one that we've ever got rid of is smallpox, sadly. We're close with measles and polio, but we've lost control of that a bit. And there's an outbreak of polio in Indonesia at the moment, small but real, in unimmunized children with what's called a vaccine virus. In other words, they've caught the polio from the old oral version of polio which had some live virus in it and one in a million or two million doses a child gets infected and can pass it to immunized children. So polio is still around and we've had imported measles into this country and the statistics just released from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance Suggests that COVID vaccination, not COVID, but vaccination rates in children are going down. And to talk about it, we've got Professor, Associate Professor Frank Baird of the University of Sydney School of Public Health. And Frank heads the Surveillance, Coverage, Evaluation and Social Science team at NCIRS. Welcome to the health report, Frank. Thank you, Norman. Just tell me about the. So we've got polio hovering there to the north of our borders, um, and it, and we've got we've had measles introduction into Australia as well in the last year, quite a few cases.
2: Yes, uh, there's been a, a lot of measles outbreaks globally because the COVID pandemic did impact quite badly on vaccination coverage rates, particularly in developing countries. So since uh, international travel has uh, heated up a bit. Uh, we, we're starting to get uh, importations and that is certainly a bit of a concern because measles is highly transmissible virus and we Australia was certified by the World Health Organization back in 2014 as having eliminated local measles transmission. So we're very keen to uh, prevent it coming in and stamp it out if it does come in.
1: And just because people haven't experienced this before, we're talking about an infection in children that can cause encephalitis, a brain infection, pneumonia, um, and a dreadful complication that's lethal called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis.
2: Yes, and it's uh, one of the most common causes of uh, death from infectious disease around the world. So, And uh, concerningly, there has been a, a spike. There was over in 2022, there was over... 130,000 deaths from measles globally, which was uh, uh, more than 40% higher than our previous year.
1: So you've just put out your figures on immunisation rates in Australia for 2022, um, and they showed reductions in immunisation rates, particularly in children. Can you just go, just run us through the findings?
2: Yes, well, we, we've we been producing these uh, coverage reports for the last 15 or 16 years now, and so the twenty. 20- 22 report, the most recent one, was the first one where we could really uh, do a comprehensive stock take of the impact of the COVID pandemic on vaccination uptake. And uh, we found that uh, there was about, we we measure vaccination coverage at these three standard age milestones, so one, two and five years. And we we found that at at all of those age milestones uh, in 2022, the coverage was around one percent lower than in 2021 and that uh, adds to around about a half a percent decrease in the previous uh, year so it's not huge numbers we're talking about one and a half two percent drop but it is concerning
1: because it's going uh, in the, the, the wrong b- direction.
2: Yeah, for the eight uh, years before the pandemic, it had been steadily going up. And in fact, in the year before the pandemic arrived, uh, vaccine coverage was at 94.8% for one in five years, which is almost at our 95% coverage target. So, And we're just to be that. clear,
1: the reason for the 95% target is just refers back to a few things, but also the measles, is that, is that when you've got community coverage, what's called herd immunity, is that if a virus gets into the community, first of all, children are individually protected, but the community is protected because the virus has got nowhere to go because the vast majority of children are protected.
2: Yes, and so that 95% target is very much set on the basis of measles as one of the most transmissible viruses. Uh, but obviously we'd like the coverage to be even higher, but 95% is certainly the target. If we can get it higher than that, then that's even better.
1: Now, in Indigenous communities, which used to have very good rates of immunisation, the gap is even larger. They've dropped even further.
2: Yes, and that that's also uh, concerning. Uh, so it's dropped over the last two years by, say, 2 to 3% uh, compared to one5 to 2%, so almost
1: twice as much of a drop. Now, you say this is due to COVID, but is it really?
2: Well, that's certainly uh, what we think is the main cause. So uh, there's been limited research done to date in Australia, but what we do have from us and other researchers uh, suggests that the the drop has been due to a a combination of what we term access and acceptance factors. So in terms of access, obviously during the pandemic, it was hard to uh, uh, get out. There were lockdowns, there were restricted access to healthcare
1: facilities. But isn't there evidence, so I understand all that, but I mean, isn't there evidence, at least internationally, but also anecdotally in Australia, of two things, vaccine fatigue, and being fed up, being told by the government what to do.
2: Yeah, so that's the acceptance side of, of things. And so certainly there, there is uh, evidence of some vaccine fatigue and uh, also some research that we have done and others have done uh, suggests that there's been an increased polarisation uh, of vaccination attitudes. So the majority of the population who... Uh, quite supportive of vaccination, they've become even more so because I've seen the benefits of COVID vaccination on the pandemic, whereas the minority of people who had uh, significant concerns about vaccination have become even more concerned due to all the intense uh, focus on COVID vaccination and the polarising debate around vaccine mandates.
1: So is there any indication, I mean, you haven't put out a 2023 report, but is there any indication that we're catching up Uh, The
2: latest uh, vaccine uh, coverage data from the Commonwealth, that's quarterly data, does suggest that The coverage has stabilised but hasn't started increasing again. So we're still a couple of percent behind where we were before the pandemic, uh, which is is a concern. And so we obviously, while it's not a huge uh, decrease, uh, it it does suggest that we should be doing something about it now to uh, address it.
1: And in vulnerable communities like Indigenous communities?
2: Yes, well, that's uh, more of a concern too, uh, but there's even less uh, evidence as to what's going on there, though we think it's the same issues. Obviously, access issues can be even more of a, an issue in uh, remote communities. And uh, we know that uh, there was a lot of uh, misinformation spreading in Aboriginal communities during the pandemic around
1: COVID vaccination. So there's a job of work to be done and some more research. Frank, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. Thanks, Norm. Associate Professor Frank Baird of the University of Sydney School of Public Health and of the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance.
0: Now, Norman, you know I love telling stories about gnarly injuries, and I have one for you today, but this one has a twist in the tale.
1: Okay, I'm listening.
0: So about a year or so ago, I was at a family barbecue, and one of the gents there was on crutches. His leg's in a brace. He's got this massive scar down the outside of his thigh, His name's Craig, he's in his mid-60s, and he'd always been just a really fit and active guy, so naturally everyone wants to know what happened to him.
1: Well, what happened to him?
0: So I know you've renovated some houses in your time. He fell from the third step of a ladder, so not that high.
1: This is why I never go up ladders.
0: (laughs) Spiral fracture of the femur, Mm. which is probably one of... I hadn't ever sort of considered one, and now it's another thing to fuel my nightmares. Horrendous break, super painful months of recovery, but while they were in there doing a million different X-rays and scans of his hip and leg, they caught an image of his bladder on the same scan that showed cancer, Mm -hmm. completely unexpected. And so along with recovering from a nightmarish injury, he's also reeling from a cancer diagnosis, having to have treatment for that. And so that's bad, but he's also kind of thanking his stars that because of this injury, they were able to catch the cancer.
1: Um, no, it's time for a dad joke. I mean, it was a lucky break.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, anyway, going to leave that one right there. That's, it's just one of those stories that stayed with me since I first heard it because it feels like one of those really cautionary tales. So I went out to Craig's place last week and I got him and his wife, Vicky, to tell me the full story.
3: It was in the radiologist's report, which was not raised with me at all. I first saw that report when I got my discharge papers. And I was just sitting on the couch sort of, as I did for weeks and weeks. Um, I thought I'd read through this report, be interesting to see what's in there. And the first thing the radiologist said was you know, a spiral fracture of the femur. Uh, and second point was there's some unidentified calcification
0: in the bladder. pull um, stop. I wouldn't even know how to interpret that. Like what did you make of it when you saw it? I just thought, what's, yeah, is that just
3: something that's from getting a little bit old? Uh, Didn't know, but I had an appointment with the GP and I took the report with me and said, you know, what's this mean? And he said, oh, look, we need to sort of investigate further. Ultimately ended up seeing a urologist. The CT scan showed that there were growths on the bladder wall. The urologist was, fairly relaxed about it, I think. But, you know, that's their day-to-day job, I suppose. Then there were some more results that came through and he said, no, it's gonna be an operation to remove these, these cysts. Until he actually did it, he was referring to them as cysts. And in, in my mind, I thought, oh, well, that's okay. That's not cancer. But it was after he'd done the operation, taken them out and had them tested, he said, "Yeah, it's high-grade cancer. That wasn't a good day. Pretty traumatic."
0: Yeah. Had you had any symptoms?
3: No, no. And that was the scary. That was that was the weird thing about it. I had no symptoms whatsoever.
0: Was there any ever any discussion about not doing anything?
3: Like, did no. they discuss
0: what would have happened if you hadn't taken? No,
3: not really. I didn't yeah. didn't ask the question. We didn't talk about that, did we?
0: Oh, he wouldn't have survived long-term without the treatment. Oh, they said that to you?
3: Once it gets into the blood wall, it then spreads. You know, he said, these have to come out. I said, fine, let's do it.
0: Yeah.
3: I found three more, and then sort of pretty quick smart. He says, oh, when are you free to come back to, to take these out? I said, oh, next month's pretty good. And he said, no, no, next week.
0: That's Do you think about what would have happened if you hadn't fallen?
3: Oh. I'd probably be still sitting here today, happy as Larry, thinking I'm a healthy, healthy buck that's, you know, invincible and probably. It's gone through your bowel. Yeah, I'd be limited time frame. I suppose. I suppose. I don't know how quickly it would have shown itself. But it's scary, scary. I mm. think.
0: So it turns out there's a term for this type of chance finding on a scan. It's called an incidentaloma. And while in Craig's case, he's confident that identifying this cancer early was a win, the data tells us that more often than not, incidentalomas lead to interventions that can cause more harm than good to patients, as well as wasting resources. That's according to a recent article in the Medical Journal of Australia. One of its authors is Ian Scott, who was inspired to write the piece in part because of a patient whose story wasn't quite as happy as Craig's
4: and the radiologist noted that he had a lesion in the tail of his pancreas, and that then raised the possibility, well, could this be pancreatic cancer? Unfortunately, these sorts of lesions aren't amenable to biopsy, so you really have to excise them totally, which means that uh, he then had to have an open operation, uh, removal of his pancreas, and a rediversion of his, uh, some of his biliary ducts. The histology of the lesion of his removed showed that it was an adenoma It did have some high-grade dysplastic features, in other words, some of the cells were looking a little precancerous. but nevertheless, it wasn't a cancer as such. But unfortunately, this man then didn't do well because um, he then developed malabsorption syndrome because the pancreas was removed, Uh, he developed type 2 diabetes as a result, he lost a lot of weight, and his quality of life really then became quite poor when previously, prior to the operation, he was doing quite well. So this was an incidental finding. People weren't looking for pancreatic cancer, but they found this lesion. Uh, this led them to all this invasive procedure, um, and the patient then perhaps not having anywhere near a good outcome as was hoped. And I just thought it raise the question of what do we do with these incidental findings, given that we're using more imaging modalities such as CT scans, PET scans, except that they can pick up a lot of things that previously we wouldn't have picked up. What do we do with these incidental findings? This is a wicked problem and there's certainly been cases where x-rays have been done, findings of a lesion that's incidental have been acted upon and uh, it's been found that this patient was actually harboring a early cancer. So you could argue well that's a win-win in the sense that the patient has been prevented from having a more advanced malignancy that uh, perhaps had a much poorer outcome. That sort of situation is more the exception rather than the rule. So. My concern is that uh, we're picking up a lot of incidental findings, which are relatively benign, uh, which aren't necessarily progressive cancers at all, and yet radiologists and referring clinicians are then left with the question, well, how far do we go here? Should we intervene? Should we do a biopsy? Uh, should we take the lesion out all together? Should we do more follow-up scans and see what happens and whether this is progressive over time? So it then adds a lot more downstream actions that uh, previously we weren't confronted with because the imaging just wasn't being done.
0: I mean, what we always want is evidence-based care. What is the early evidence telling us about how finding more of these things, like we know that that number's gone up, has mortality gone down in the organ systems that those findings are related to?
4: Yes, that's a good question. The evidence would suggest no. We're not really changing the mortality rate from cancer, whether you look at adrenal cancer or ovarian cancer, thyroid cancers, cancers of different organs. It's all this extra imaging and picking up incidental findings. Is this making a difference to the case fatality rate or to the overall population mortality rate due to these cancers? And the evidence would suggest that, no, it's not. So I think we do have to then ask ourselves, well, what are we actually achieving
0: here in actually intervening in many of these cases? So what are you calling for? What needs to change?
4: Well, I think, first of all, we should just be a little conservative in our imaging. Obviously, if we do less imaging, then we're not going to have as many incidentalomas to deal with. I think the second step is that we need to just look at if something is found, an incidentaloma on the x-ray, well, then what is the best evidence to guide us in determining is this likely to be a cancer or not? And what should the action be in relation to then either imaging this patient again or intervening? We know that, you know, there are certain risk factors for cancers. So the first thing is to ask, in this patient, do they have risk factors that would suggest that this incidental finding, what seems to be a lesion, could it be cancer? In other words, if the patient is a smoker, if they've had previous history of various cancers, uh, if there's a family history of cancer, for example, well, in that sort of situation, you'd be a little more suspicious that this could be an early cancer and you may then want to be a little more aggressive. But if none of those risk factors um, exist, And if the radiological findings, in other words, the morphology, the location, the size, etc., of the lesion would suggest this is benign in a patient who's otherwise asymptomatic and has no other risk factors for cancer of that particular organ, then I suggest, well, the report should read, this is very likely to be a benign lesion, and we would not recommend any further action at this stage. This is not easy sometimes to accept. People would always err on the side of caution and perhaps think, well, even if there's a 5% chance of this is a cancer, should we do something? But I think we can be reasonably confident uh, based on risk factor profiling, the morphology, and the size and location of the lesion, and also helped, I think, by machine learning as well applied to radiology imaging, which I think also is now developing characteristics of what is a cancer versus a non-cancer, for example. Then I think we can then um, be a little more conservative in our reporting and reassure patients and GPs that uh, this is more than likely to be benign and that's a good outcome for the patient.
0: It is good and you know evidence-based is the gold standard but it is hard psychologically when you hear stories of those like really unusual lucky breaks your brain holds onto them and kind of almost lifts them above what the data actually shows.
4: Uh, You're absolutely right and that's why this is a wicked problem. And, uh, you know, my colleagues uh, had certainly had said the same thing in various cases that we discussed from time to time. Wasn't this a good outcome? Yes, it was. But I think we also need to perhaps better appreciate there is a downstream a negative effect. You could argue that uh, in this particular man's case, the imaging didn't suggest that he had any localized invasion or spread of this lesion. We need to bear in mind this man's in his mid-70s. And although he was physically fit, he did have some other medical problems. And I think we have to understand, well, what's their life expectancy, what's the quality of life that this patient currently has. Also, their preferences too. Do they want us to do an open operation? Well, obviously, in this man's case, he must decide that, yes, he did want to take it out, he didn't want to um, take any risk. But nevertheless, I think when you reflect on cases like that, uh, then you perhaps, uh, when you have a similar case come along next time, then perhaps you'd uh, at least think twice about whether we should intervene or not. Mm. What we need is some longitudinal studies of ailments In other words, rather than intervening, whether we could try to get more long-term cohort studies that suggest, right, if we follow this person, like the 75-year-old I was talking about, what would be the outcome? We really don't know what the natural history of these uh, incidentalomas are. And because everyone's always worried about cancer, then we tend to intervene. So we really never find out, well, what is the natural history? It would be nice to have some more cohort studies and perhaps even controlled trials where, okay, if we have, again, in that man of 75, well, this is more difficult to mount. We do a trial where, okay, we randomise patients with similar incidental to either intervention or no intervention. And then, again, look at the outcomes and see what happens. I think that's going to be more difficult to do, mind you. And I think that uh, in terms of some of the radiology societies, that's what they're trying to do is to develop patient registries. So I think that will help us in defining the natural history of some of these lesions.
0: Ian, thanks so much for joining me.
4: That's right, Tegan. Thank you.
0: Ian Scott is Director of Internal Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane and Professor in Clinical Decision Making at the University of Queensland.
1: Yeah, fascinating research. I mean, Ian's really been a pioneer of evidence-informed medicine in Australia and does amazing work like this. But I mean, there's this trend, Tegan, towards So your friend Craig had an x-ray that he needed to have and um but some people choose to have x-rays and scans and the rate of incidentalomas can be anything up to 40% in scans and people are going off for whole body mris as part of annual checkups thinking this is going to be good for them
0: yeah i've heard i've heard people say that before it's like just get in tell me what's in there get it out not sort of realizing that there's always a trade-off
1: Indeed. I mean, there's a role for whole body MRI and growing role for cancer surveillance when you've already got cancer, or if you've got cancer, they want to stage it to see how far it's spread, but not as a screening test where you're just Randomly looking, and also um, radiologists can miss stuff if they don't know that you've got a pain in your tummy or you've got this particular symptom. You're, the radiologist actually might be distracted looking elsewhere and not going for the money, in a sense. And so, the, so whole body MRIs there's, there's zero evidence that they're going to be of any good. I mean, and also. There's the issue of existing tests and where they're going for diagnostic tests. Do you actually need an imaging test and is it right? So, for example, if you've got a pain in the knee and there's no, le- there's no fl- you know, what they call red flags where mm-hmm. you're losing weight or you are got a fever and that sort of thing. The right X-ray to have is a standing X-ray of your knee, a weight-bearing X-ray. But people get sent off for MRIs of the knee and MRIs of the back when you've got spinal, when you've got back pain. And that just shows up stuff you don't want to know <laughs> and makes no difference to the severity of the disease.
0: Yeah, you think you want to know what's there, but it turns out that it's not always the best thing.
1: No. But we've got some news, haven't we?
0: We do. We're moving. So this is our last Monday evening on RN. Next week, if you're listening at this time, you will hear global roaming with Geraldine Doog and Hamish McDonald, which you should absolutely listen to. But we are moving to Saturday mornings and, Norman, we're growing.
1: We are. I mean... The Health Report has been on a Monday since it began many, many years ago, before you were born, probably. (laughs) Probably. And yet we're moving and it's going to be an hour of absolute joyful pleasure and health.
0: (laughs) So come join us at 9am on Saturday mornings.
1: And don't forget, watch That Rash, our new podcast, and you can register for that wherever you get your podcasts or on the ABC
0: Listen app. See you on Saturday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.